0: Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. First up, uh, an apology, or maybe better put, an explanation. We haven't been releasing that many podcasts recently, and it's not because we haven't had recordings, it's down to me and my inability to find the time to edit and all of that kind of stuff, which I used to do actually on my flights between Dublin and London. I mean, there's, of course, in the last year we haven't had those times. I think we all know that despite the inertia of this last year or the seeming inertia caused by a lack of our ability to move freely as we would, it actually doesn't mean that we had any additional downtime. Obviously, we had less, everything Uh, impinged with more urgency and, of course, everything takes more time. Thrown into that, our office was robbed some time ago and recording equipment and all those kinds of things was taken anyway. Neither here nor there and I'm back sitting at my desk recording on an iPhone like I did for the first few episodes, maybe because of the hiatus. A few people were emailing, um, urging us to continue the series and saying how much uh, they enjoyed hearing the insights of practitioners and others uh, into how they work and their studies and how they ended up where they did, which is always lovely. And it really is. And I'd like to thank those people who've emailed in. And it is useful then for us to kind of go again. We have eight uh, interviews already recorded. And my uh, thanks for the patience for those guests in waiting for these to be released. And you'll be getting them out over the next uh, weeks and months. Um, And then more coming in and hopefully with more diverse voices interviewing them. I mean, Register was never supposed to be uh, Andrew Clancy talking to people. It was supposed to be and is, in effect, a capturing of some of the conversations that happen in our wonderful school. So once we get the next uh, six or seven interviews out of the way, you'll be hearing from more and more different members of the team interviewing our guests. And I think that can only add to the value of the conversation, because we're unashamedly, I guess, concerned with the matter of architecture. I mean, of course, we can talk about architecture and around architecture, and those things are really valuable and really uh, important. Um, But we like to get into the nitty gritty, I guess, of the task of the practitioner, which isn't an easy task. And I know that can be overplayed, but it is true that there is a complexity required and a contingency in the work, which is is actually not easily captured in academic conversations. And we enjoy the messy edges uh, of how people find their way through the subject and the way they make sense of what they do, which is proffered here as a way of developing empathy with these people. But of course, because we're aiming at students, about people, I suppose, about encouraging us each to find our own position in the subject and recognize that our own diverse voices can only add to the discipline once we're enabled to find a work method that empowers us and allows us to bring the best that we can to the table wherever we are. So, so that's a rather extended introduction. We don't normally do those kind of rambles, um, but it is by way of explanation. And then I'd like to uh, introduce our guests uh, in this episode, uh, which was recorded almost a year ago, one of the last that we recorded in person. And it's an interview with uh, Hermansen Hiller-Lundberg, which is a practice based in Stockholm, set up and run by Andreas Hermansen, Andreas Hiller and Samuel Lundberg. And uh, both Andreas and Samuel were, uh, came over to give their lecture and we sat down the next morning to talk. Um, I really enjoyed the, the lecture and I really enjoyed the conversation. Their practice is concerned with the capacity for contemporary construction to offer a space for expression. In this conversation, we hear them speak about how they pa- balance this present tense aspect of the work, which captures expressive qualities against an awareness to the role of architecture to work in harmony with the landscapes it stands in. And here, I use the term landscapes in the broader sense, both the landscape of the construction procurement and the construction systems that we use these days, but also the physical built and found landscapes of where their buildings are situated. Anyway, enough for me. On with the interview. Thank you so much. So a
1: very big welcome to Samuel Lundberg and Andreas Hiller from Permanson Hiller-Lundberg to the Kingston School of Art. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And these conversations, you know, they kind of vary. uh, And this one's slightly unusual in that um, normally we record them before the lecture. So that there is a kind of uh, an openness to the conversation, not knowing in depth what you're going to talk about. But of course, we're doing this the morning after the the lecture. And so therefore, I'm kind of thinking of some of the themes that surfaced in that. And I'm thinking um, primarily really here of uh, the first project that you showed us, which was this remarkable um, plastered house. I think it's the Skuru project where you make a... Monolithic, uh, quite uh, ordered form that looks like it might have been made in precast concrete. I had assumed that it had been when I saw it before. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's made in incredibly thin and fragile and ordinary materials, and you've almost drawn on these tectonics mm. to that building. And I just wanted to maybe hear a little bit more about your thinking behind that project and what you were trying to do.
2: In many ways, we had an interesting starting point with the client and the brief, and also the site. But it kind of restraints so only had sort of a one place to put the uh, the building. It turned into sort of a simple, simple building volume, kind of a block, almost right away. And then, of course, we we found out uh, a good plan, and we started working with a sort of ordered mm, ordered plan, and. Really, knowing that it was a sort of a strict low budget project, we had to find some way to be accommodating of not being able to have a sort of a ideal architect's process where you would be able to specify all the construction details and everything like that. So in a sense, uh, reflecting on it, it's almost a bit more like the the older kind of architecture that you would have like 200 years ago where you would make the plans and the façade and there would be sort of traditional techniques where people would make a wall and then you would have sort of apply the um, well, ornament or order or things like that to that make an overall appearance that didn't necessarily ref- reflect a particular mode of construction. So, um, and of course, one of the things we we wanted to investigate there was this sort of monumental uh, or w- when we started looking at the the how we set those tiny recesses, how we sort of defined those block like parts of the facade, we realized that we could we could sort of make the house quite muscular and strong because it was such a small and tiny house so it, it turned into a sort of folly in this sort of landscape tradition like you could have a small sort of temple like thing in its green surroundings but uh, so it was kind of a back and forth about how to Mm, calibrate uh, the sort of power of the appearance of the building and what we found was that it was really very tiny tiny uh, things like this recesses in the plaster that's really like like one centimeter deep literally so uh, we would have the walls in this kind of block like um, expanded clay block construction when the plaster was applied everything was sort of brought together but by using these tiny recesses it turned into a sort of a combined language of form that that had a very strong um, striking uh, appearance um. and And actually, as is the case in many projects we,
3: when we when we made the initial design and we were working out the the, the themes of the architecture, we didn't know the, uh, the what kind of construction it would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually, we we were quite happy with this this um, expanded clay blocks because they had something a kind of uh, invisible element to to because it it really is uh, a kind of archaic uh, structure. We, we were quite happy when we were out on site uh, and they were just uh, laying these big blocks on top o- of each other is the kind of most uh, archaic kind of uh, construction. Uh, but, but we had already made uh, another kind of uh, archaic architecture out of it that that could in fact have been uh, constructed with a wooden frame uh, uh, balloon frame construction or anything. Uh, and that is um <coughs> that is actually the, the most usual condition for us uh, to not know. Uh, when we when we make the design, or when we figure out the uh, architectural themes, not to know what kind of construction it will be, because also in in major projects it's it's often a tender question. We 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 submit uh, uh, we submit uh, uh, plans for for tendering, not knowing at all what what kind of construction it would be, and so you have to uh, have a, a kind of architectural theme and a sense of how you can achieve that uh, in, in in many ways so it doesn't grow out of the structural uh, necessities it doesn't flow from that but it flows in, in a way the other the other way around and it just feels like um i mean it's a very contemporary
1: issue uh, but of course it's also existed at many times in the history of architecture the the times when there was a fundamentally causal relationship between structure form, ornament and order uh, are actually comparatively rare if we think about Uh it. And it's this funny thing where Samuel, you were saying, you know, it wasn't an ideal construction project in that sense. And I actually wonder how how many of the projects that we admire in history were also ideal in that sense or not ideal. And it does seem like that kind of contingency or that kind of um, malleability Uh. is a key part of architectural thinking throughout history that tends not to get surfaced because it's harder to describe. Um, I'm thinking here of, oh, last night we were talking about bombs, facades particularly, and also we were thinking about uh, Leverence's interior of the Resurrection Chapel where, Mm. in both cases, there's an order, but it's almost drawn on the wall. And the order is necessary. But it isn't a causal product of the construction, Mm -hmm. and yet it refers to the memories of constructed order and of language. I think this is an interesting one because I remember as a student becoming fixated about the ideas of honesty and Mm -hmm. purity and Mm -hmm. somehow belief that, you know, there had to be this essential, true, thoroughgoing, throughgoing idea to a project. Mm And it sort of it was useful at certain times, but it sort of held me back in practice. And I'm curious: did your education leave you with similar problems, similar questions?
3: It was. I think it was absolutely like that. I mean, uh, I think that when we went to school, that was the most dominant uh, kind of idea uh, that was being taught. It was still a kind of remnant of this. Uh, this this modernist ideal of of honesty that was of course always in many ways compromised as you say it, it, there was <laughs> it's difficult to say that 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 the honesty uh, was ever achieved uh, uh, but but that was uh, very much uh, a central theme uh, and what was being taught and I think it's also a kind of ease. Uh, it's a natural concept for a student to to get drawn into uh, honesty because also it's so difficult to be honest in, in architecture uh, and when you get down to it and realize how, how the building works uh, it, it becomes uh, an almost impossible problem to to be honest and <laughs> to make a well-functioning uh, modern building it, it's it, it, I would say it's almost impossible uh, I think uh, there was, I can think of this uh, kind of um, uh, this project by, by Chipperfield with, with a concrete that's the, it's a completely massive wall. Uh, yeah, the Berlin yeah. offices. Th- that is perhaps one kind of, of being honest or doing, it, but it's, it's still it's kind of te- technical solution. Uh, it's, not, it's not certain that, that, that any of that is, uh, uh, that you can define honesty in, in that way but of course that was that was a major part of uh, of how we saw things in school and then the there started to come cracks in that belief uh, we had a, we had a teacher who who always said is it simple or does it look simple and then at one point you just think to yourself but does it matter really does it matter Really matter if it is simple inside. If the point, the architectural point, is to look simple, then maybe that can be just a thing and an end in itself. Uh, And I remember also with the opposite thing when you were a kid and you realized that all these plastered buildings in the city, all these old buildings, were actually made of brick. Mm -hmm. That was kind of a a wonderful discovery. That things. uh, things aren't what they seem and they can have uh, another layer uh, beneath them and that was uh, this kind of uh, this kind of simple discovery is also a part of the joy of of architecture to to have uh, those layers beneath it.
2: I think this project this good house for us is very much like um, mm, a concentration on a lot of those thoughts and um, if we really want to sort of boil it down you can almost uh, make it into sort of a tectonics and, and rhetoric in a sense, it, it is in a sense, it almost tells us that tectonics are a kind of rhetoric, it's not like a honest, whatever that means, um, <coughs> expression or something, it's a conscious way to tell something, in a sense, it's a little bit like uh, the way we, we explain the world to ourselves and to society and such. We want to, to have some way of keeping it together and th- there's a sort of a richness in this. Uh, and of course it's always possible to, to say, no, it's slightly different, it's, it's this way we want to, to have it, uh, this is the way we want to express it. Uh, so, th- But there is a particular kind of, of, of delight in, in that richness, that doesn't draw its strength from the perfect match to some underlying truth or anything like that, but it has its own, yeah, its own richness. Uh, in a sense. and I think a lot of the history of architecture is very much um, centered on this sort of uh, delight in, in, in form and delight in, in you know confidently you know, stating something. And of course uh, why would that be sort of reduced to the conditions that were present in a particular kind of wall or anything like that? instead it's much more like calibrated and rich and, and made to be built and to be experienced and to be part of of course the the both the environment and also the history of architecture I, I do find a lot of the building you sort of returns to uh, that you return to um, that you're fascinated by in the history of architecture are often the buildings that have some sort of a underlying tension, some underlying thing that you sort of can go back to and experience, and you can, you can look at it from different um, angles, but and th- not just come to any one truth, but there are many, it's a sort of richness of interpretation.
3: But now that I think of it really re- just now, I think that it could possibly be, uh, it might be possible to to return to uh, uh, uh uh, and to make interesting things with with honesty. Now I think that the uh, the thing that was uh, that was uh, not good about that that old it was the uh, these old notions was where that they they were a kind of dogma, mm-hmm. uh, the, the modernist dogma uh, uh, that nobody was questioning really. And I think now most architects. Have a more reflective view of honesty and 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 what it means, and I think that now you could probably go back and and uh, and investigate honesty and and work with it uh, in 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 a much more interesting way, uh, because it I mean it is an interesting theme to be honest, uh, and what would it what would it mean? Could you do it now? Uh, to to. To revisit that—that uh, that might be a, 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 an interesting theme to uh, to work with now. It's a funny one. It's like I kind of think that
1: the period in our education, and that can happen—we're still being educated—where mm-hmm. one is attracted to um, these kind of through-going ideas, like the honesty of tectonics one that we're talking about. They're sort of necessary stages, I think that they're kind of natural things for the brain to like to puzzle with. Mm. And actually human culture shows us that repeatedly this problem has surfaced and been resolved in very different ways. That tension seems to be a fundamental aspect of architectural culture. And I think the reason it becomes complicated in its articulation is that what we're talking about is a nuanced reading between these things. You know, you're talking about the plastered walls of the houses in Stockholm and the brick underneath. But of course, the memory of the brick is also present in the proportion of the openings. So Mm. even though there Mm. is this plastic um, texture uniting the surface, the brickwork remains as a tensile relationship with that facade. Mm. And these things are sort of... um, I think we're in the orbit of trying to talk about language. And I don't mean language in the sense of, of the words that we're using now, but in whether there is a kind of a meaning or a kind of a thinking embodied in the physical artefact and the nature of its making. Mm. And it feels to me that that's something that's kind of a recurrent interest of your practice, which is that whatever the material is, be it fiberboard or brick or plaster, that there is a, there is an expressive potential to that material which has sort of nothing to do with the material on one level, Hmm. and yet on the other is always an inventive thinking about the material itself. hmm. And I'm just wondering, um, on that, when you're working, do you work abstractly in terms of, okay, there's timber buildings, there's plaster buildings. They have a kind of very consistent concern with a particular type of order and a particular type of tensile skin.
3: Hmm.
1: And when you're working on those things, is it... Color first, then the material, or how is that working through when you start to get that order emerging on the facade?
2: I would say it. When we're getting into a project, in many ways, I mean, we work on on multiple levels at the same time. Of course, we you know the restrictions, um, our briefs, the sizes, and such. And we make some sort of perhaps um, have some idea what, uh, what the volumetrics could be, about the composition. And then we start to work out through wi- what we know. I mean, perhaps sometimes we don't know the construction, but perhaps we know that one of the possibilities is going to be a particular kind of construction that is that is going to have to be one of the options. And then that could be restricted. Perhaps we can only have these spans or something like that. And even if it's built in another way, perhaps we need to order it according to that one. So. In many ways, it, it starts with some kind of order. I mean, it, it it is a little bit the order of the plan uh, to work it out. But but we very quickly go into the, the sort of order, of the facade. How does it sort of? How do we subdivide it? How do we uh, combine the things? How do we find some ways to sort of break it down, put it together, that kind of thing? That doesn't necessarily uh, start with any material and things like that, but. Sort of in a sort of searching way, we we, we find some way w- where it goes into what, what we find is some sort of interesting and coming from that investigation uh, order that sort of I don't know how to well, orders the whole thing, it's really is the so so and, and but that is sort of not an end point, it's simply a sort of a a way into the project in many ways. And then of course we can work against or for this uh, together with that and so on. Uh, depending on whether we think it sort of works or if it's or the scale is right or mm. it's, it's like we work at something and then we feel like, okay, this could have worked on if something was had been different. It was slightly lower, then it could have worked, but doesn't work now. Mm. So and, and then so we're constantly sort of iterating ourselves Forward to something uh, that will turn into a sort of complex whole, mm. and of course I, I don't know. It's sort of, it's not really intuitive. It's more like we've worked uh, together for so long and, and and worked out a lot of things, so we sort of have our ways, I guess. Uh, but it is it is a sort of we don't know. We don't have a clear vision at the at the starting when we're starting out. We mm. sort of we need to to sort of map out possibilities through these things and, and move forward. Um, to something that we feel is a uh, unified, you know, in proposal. Mm. Uh,
3: and and sometimes the I mean, sometimes a kind of solution or, or formal element of it comes from uh, 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 quite another direction. We were we were working on this hotel project, and we had a facade that was supposed to be in. Uh, prefabricated concrete panels and we had worked out the order and the uh, proportions uh, of the facade and made all of the detailing really in order to be able to uh, conceal the joints uh, everywhere in this in this uh, grid of, of concrete panels and then all of a sudden it was decided that uh, uh, this was not to be the construction method there were, it was to be a lightweight uh, structure uh, with a steel facade and then we just Really translated everything that we had done purposefully for the concrete facade uh, into this sheet metal structure, and so uh, the recesses and the pillars that were made to conceal the joints of the concrete uh, they became the corrugated uh, corrugated steel, and and the order could be uh, actually transformed completely into that new idiom with with only a few changes for the for the material mm-hmm. and of course all the detailing, but. Sometimes the formal solutions just come from the process, but they 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 keep working when they they have been made redundant. Uh, for,
1: uh. Yeah, I love this aspect of architectural thinking. Um, that happens in a lot of our projects as well, where we might design something to be in, say, mass timber construction. Mm-hmm. And of course, because in Ireland there is no mass timber industry, it invariably because of economics and transportation costs it becomes impossible, so you mm. sort of have to go back to block work or something. But the, the memories leave a trace. And this is something that's kind of interesting because I hear a lot of people um, having problems with the nature, the, the, the amount of work that it takes to design something, to design something well. And it feels to me that none of this is wasted work all of these memories leave their trace and somehow they shape the project in a way that produces this tension that we might have talked about earlier on because yeah. it's it's another thing that I have a slight, and maybe it's just inevitable to do with our age, which is that, there's a lot of people particularly in London and they just kind of offhand say things like oh you know architecture has lost its agency it does not have the same status it once had and all of this and I go okay then I can see where you're coming from but it, it seems it, it her- is true it <laughs> is true but it's also horrifically sentimental mm-hmm. because the it, it, it doesn't notice the potentials of our own age and architecture is always shaped by the age in which it is sustained and it, all I say to those people is there's a lot more architects working today than at any point in human history. Hmm. We're also designing a greater proportion of the built environment in any than in any point oh. in human history. Even if it is a small. It's kind percentage. of crazy to think, uh, given the the results. <laughs> this is, and this is where it becomes interesting, because we also have to own up to a discipline is that there are varying levels of talent and sincerity of engagement while all architects are competent one hopes Mm. there is different kind of results and I think that comes from an inability to understand that when one's designing the fabric Mm. as we now do and as we confront the carbon crisis as we must regulations tighten Mm. and the control of the architect in these situations is of course less because we're doing the types of work that we never did before Mm. and that means we have to think differently we have to think with more nimbleness and actually to return to your comment about the ideal design process it doesn't exist it might exist for Chipperfield or people orbiting at that level of the discipline but actually it isn't available to us and probably shouldn't be I don't feel any loss in that it's just a different way of navigating and negotiating the forces to make a project if you know what I mean Mm.
3: And I I was always struck by that when, when we were when we were being educated, and and I think that maybe somewhere around when we started school was maybe a kind of a low point of of Swedish architecture. There was very little culture and, and little being built. But uh, I was always struck that uh, architects complained so so much. They they complained all the time. Everything was was terrible, and uh, uh, and I I could give them rights on on every point of what they were complaining about. But it was so. It felt so boring to be to be so negative about all of that stuff, uh, and uh, um, maybe maybe I'm just a, an optimist. But I always thought that we can always we can do something with this <laughs> if we just work with it. We we can make it, and and to complain about the things that are. I mean, there there, there are many things that to be lamented uh, about the state of uh, of affairs for architects today, but. I mean, this this will no use uh, in in uh, uh, in just lamenting it. Uh, you have to you have to engage with, it. and and as you say, you can find the challenge that is very interesting to try to solve as an as an uh, intellectual matter and as a matter of um, hmm, professional
2: nimbleness or something. Uh, and of course <coughs> any kind of so that kind of nostalgia is also of course a kind of dumbing down of, of history because of course the ma- the way the styles were, or, you know, in the 1920s when we had the Nordic classicism it wasn't there before, so it was a new thing, you know, if you look at back it now and, and someone said you know we should do more of these buildings, well, you can do it, but that would also be uh, a different kind of, you know, experience because uh, what they did when they did it was a sort of a Invention a sort hmm. of um, culture if you will and they were navigating their messy reality of, of how they wanted to do it And, and they had their own heritage uh, from the generation before and it's always this kind of thing if you look go back to the history it's like The more you, you, you sort of Identify with or keep an open mind or really want to To learn it. It's always incredibly rich uh, There's the a bit of environment. That's one of the things. I mean, we feel that um that the history of architecture is very present I mean in, in a literal sense it's uh, it's literally there all the, these buildings I mean it's no difference from experience this building from that building there from the different times of course we know a lot of things about them that inform our experience somehow but it's also I think I think what you want to do is you want to um, uh, yes to use that knowledge of history um, Sort of heighten your your experience of those buildings because they are really um, they are very fresh. They're very you know direct. Uh, you can really learn from those buildings. You don't have to say, well, we should back go back in time and there was a different time when the architect that that kind of status or something like that. Well, they probably had some kind of status that we don't have, and they had other restrictions that we don't have. So mm. <laughs> who's to say? the combination would produce this or that so in many ways i i feel like the the good thing there is to to be you know engaging with the the history very much and um knowing your our own position where we are and you know just working from our position as architects always have done Mm -hmm. i mean that's i mean the it's almost like if if you come to a building now where you feel someone has had like this sort of incredible budget, incredible control, everything. We can almost feel like it's a little bit um, strange, re- really. Is that, that kind of almost ideal, uh, yeah. per- perfect building, it's almost... I don't, it I doesn't mean, I, seem I, I, right. It doesn't it's seem right, you know? It doesn't seem like well, it, it would be, be proper. Well, also, <laughs> I think it's...
1: Uh, the, I mean, these things exist, mm. and they sort of always have. Hmm. Um, But when they become a kind of venerated primary primary culture of architecture, Mm -hmm. but this kind of idea that this autonomized architecture that's embodied in one figure becomes uh, some kind of recipe that should be promulgated, Mm -hmm. I find that really difficult because what we're actually talking about here is that Um, architecture gains its valency by its very quality of being enmeshed in the world. Mm. You know, fundamentally, architecture answers questions that arise outside of architecture. And fundamentally, architecture belongs to the world beyond architecture. And and yet it has its autonomy as a school of thinking. Mm. But that autonomy involves the rich culture of interconnection that exists with everything else. So where I'm kind of going is that the meaning of architecture, for me, the really profound moments of meaning arise from precisely its interconnection with the world, and that can be kind of complicated for people to embrace because we're fundamentally asking them to embrace contingency mm-hmm. and to imbra- and yet still be talented shapers of space in all of that contingency, mm-hmm. um, and that's why the built environment is so. You know, it's a funny one where. I was listening to Shelley McNamara, and she was being interviewed on a morning news programme in Ireland. And I think that the interviewer referred to them as designers, and she said, yes, architecture is commonly referred to as a design discipline, but it's not. It's much more important than that, because it's a deep cultural reading of many different things, and it has to be useful, but it also has a cultural presence. And ultimately, the cities that we have are the living embodiment of the collected thinking of generations and i it was a kind of very obvious thing to mm. say, but a very truthful thing to say and I don't think that's aggrandizing architecture to say it's a little bit more serious than design yes. um and I'm just wondering because you do buildings you do care homes and you're doing um you know preschools and you're doing buildings um you know quite quite interesting programmatic mixes of say student housing combined with care homes combined with kindergartens and all of this kind of thing and what we haven't talked about yet is the plan and how you navigate plan and the precision of plan and human engagement
2: i think the um an interesting thing about the plan is perhaps housing uh, to start to think about because housing is very much a kind of contemporary uh task um in sweden for instance through economic um, you know efficiency and through the efficiency of the planning process we tend to many ta- ta- times only work with uh, projects that have like a hundred uh, apartments or more because uh, it's almost like the municipality doesn't even want to plan for smaller things because it takes the same time to plan for a small thing than for a big thing and then they want to have the big thing to have more apartments Yeah, uh, these kind of different things so uh, that, uh, and when you do housing it's sort of inevitably comprised of a lot of repetition. You, you, mean you have the, the apartment types, you have the different floors, you have the, the, the things going through and so on. So you have to you know know what you want to do. You have to make sort of an efficient plan to to make the right kind of apartments, the right kind of sizes, it's kind of a puzzle. And at the same time, you have to start to look at the building, or we feel, you have to start to look at the building right at once to see how it will be and sort of investigate what kind of architecture y- you would like to do. And then you have to de- develop the plan so it will be sort of supporting of the kind of architecture that you want to do. So it's kind of a, you have to do it all at once. So the plan has to be sort of, all the puzzles, or the, the pieces of the puzzle have to be worked out so they, they are sort of perfect on their own, or perfect whatever that means, uh, right. Uh, and they also have to fit together so that the, the whole thing, natu- or sort of, um, flows from from from, from that composition. Um, so somehow, it's like you have to make be very rigorous about making those plans in housing in order to be able to sustain uh, a sort of order or a, a architectural proposal for the whole thing that sort of flows from the way you've sort of structured the plan. So the plan is very important, because if everyone is happy with the way you design the apartments, and they come together in an efficient way. They say, OK, that's the way best way to build this house. And then we have the perfect conditions to make Whatever kind of architecture we want to do. Mm. Um, And then most of the time, something happens. Like people are saying, Oh, well, you know, we have some new information and we don't really want to have 35% of this kind of uh, apartments. We want to have 30% and this other one. And then you have to sort of redesign. And then many times we feel like then we don't want to just, you know, change a little bit here or a little bit there because then we sort of lose control of the plan, the process, how everything sort of goes together. Then we sort of say, okay, that's very interesting. We will look at that, and then we go back, and then we work out. You know, perhaps we can make some minor changes. Perhaps we have to redesign the thing. So we come back with a new sort of unity that fits the whole. Uh, so in many ways, that kind of thing, the plan for us is a way to to ensure that the whole project is sort of sound and and, and works in the way that it fulfills all the requirements, but also that it gives us the conditions to make the kind of architecture that that we have sort of worked out as Mm. part of the proposals we have. Mm. Mm. We never present just a plan and and then we'll see all the facades. We always, or vice versa, we always present it as a sort of unified architecture. Mm. And then if we get new conditions, then we want to go back and present a new sort of, yeah like a uniform project. it. And,
3: and I mean, we, we are, uh, I, I guess we are pretty constricted uh, uh, in, in our possibilities in using the plan. So I think that one of the main, uh, the main kind of uh, modes of working that we have to use is uh, configuration rather than, than, than working uh, organically so <laughs> to sort of speak on, on the plan. I mean, there's a lot of work being done. I think here, uh, here in in Britain and in Switzerland, with very elaborate, wonderful plants that that have this kind of very um, intuitive and organic characters that seem to flow in, in a different way. Mm. Uh, um, but I w- I would say that in Sweden, making those kinds of plants, it would be, it's not possible. It, uh, so what we have to work with basically are the rectangular blocks often also we have a lot of projects that are uh, constructed with these uh, modules and they are uh, rectangular blocks of certain shapes uh, and sizes and and so we have to use a lot more uh, we have to work a lot more with configuration Uh, and also of course because of the scale of the project there is often the po- the possibility the uh, with larger scale projects you have the possibility of working with configuration in 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 an interesting way because in a small project you are quite limited yeah. uh, in that sense
1: it's an interesting one that isn't it I mean I think you're talking about the those beautiful plans by um, Ellie Masiebi's practice mm-hmm. and then some of the more recent work by Sir and Bates yeah. and it's quite interesting that well surgeon and Bates seem to be moving in very interesting ways and they seem to be very open and they're engaging with these different cultures and kind of advancing it but it's interesting because we interviewed Ellie as part of this series and she was interesting about those plans which they love developing but, but they've moved to um, sorry, but they've moved to um, actually highly refined orthogonal plans because of the nature of the work that they're doing and the plan is part of the culture and the brief is part of the culture mm. and so the architect is part of the site that they work on and that site includes the regulations mm. and that can be read in the plans which I find kind of this ret- we're returning to this conversation about the reading of context that every building is a reading of context and and in that there is meaning of a sort you know there mm-hmm. is a kind of a potential for <coughs> for a story to be told and In the plans that you make, then, you are, like, you do seem to be very um, interested in, well, the minimum necessary to produce a kind of social cohesion. So I'm thinking of that uh, student housing block where it's effectively dormitory rooms off a double loaded corridor. Mm. But then you step that corridor at three points to make this small room in the corridor that links to the exterior and these become the points for kind of social encounter in the plan Mm. and it's it's a very beautiful thing there's no there's no real change of geometry there's just a slipping of a standard order which is the minimum possible Mm. to produce these moments Mm. and where am I going with this I just think that there's something in that precision which I find kind of interesting I mean does that come early on in the process and something that you kind of hold on to or is it something which is discovered through these Generations of the, how the project
2: evolves, and then you really hold tight. <clears throat> I think, um, I think for for that project, for instance, I mean, there is um, it was a, it's a difficult site and a program with a lot of these repetitions. But it, so the stepping does all those things, but it also enables us to sort of climb the mountain in a sort of gentle way. To so it it also reflects some possibility for uh, volumes also in the in the overall scheme. So it is uh, it works on a number of levels at the same time. So mm-hmm. you have a, a sort of, yeah, and, and I think that kind of modulation also is interesting because it also brings back a little bit <coughs> the discussion from this first uh, project we discussed, uh, the, um, the scooter house or the plaster itself. Like, there are some elements that, that if you're using it up to a certain scale you can sort of delight in their conditions, like monumentality, used in a small scale. That's a a great thing to have. And monumentality on a super large scale can be sort of oppressive and and dangerous. Hmm. And in the same way, this sort of repetition of these elements, by making those steps in the plan, that also gives this volume, then we can sort of have a sort of ordinary calmness of repetition Without it going so far as to be this sort of endless corridor thing, where repetition becomes uh, a bad thing, you mm-hmm. know. And it's but 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 used in just about that length of corridor, it's like oh, this is just a normal, you know, nice corridor, and the the light is over there. Mm-hmm. So th- so that kind of thing, it sort of works up until that point, and then it works on a number of levels, I guess.
3: Yes, mm. and and in that particular project, it was it was from the very very first our very first sketch, it was like that, and and it was okay in that i mean in many projects it's the other way around it comes something like that comes in quite late and you figure it out late but in that project it, it was part of the of the very initial scheme and what you can say about that also is that that kind of maneuver uh, is also in some way a kind of uh, it, it becomes a kind of tactic because <laughs> uh, when you when you when you step the volume, there has to happen something here. Uh, and and uh, uh, if you have a straight plan and you just, for instance, take out an apartment and say this is important because uh, in, in this space there has to happen something, um, then it's so easy it for a client to say, we'll just put back that apartment because it's better economically. But when you step the volumes, when you have the corridor uh, and that meeting, I, the, it's a necessity to, for it to happen, to, for something else to happen. You can't just put an apartment in there, so it can be a kind of tactic uh, yeah. uh, for uh, things that uh, the things that we are not really actually in charge of. Uh, but but uh, when you put those kinds of points into a plan, uh, everybody understands and accepts that. Okay, this here here is it something else has to happen yeah yeah
1: yeah, because you talked in in the lecture about how architects have to think five steps ahead of the process to understand the logics of the conversation so that the architecture is protected so that there is a space for that conversation and i think that's very true which is that there are things which are not justifiable through the forces of the market or the forces of regulation they are justifiable through human experience and the nature of architecture. And those um, sentences don't have a lot of currency in certain meetings. Mm-hmm. Oh. and And so being able to find the the rationale for something on a level beyond that is is kind of an essential talent. Mm. Um, it's an essential ability, I think. And so, like in that case, in that project, it's it was useful. I doubt if it was strategic at the start, where you went, "Well, we know that they're going to put pressure on us to remove these social spaces." Hmm. But at at some point, it arises and it becomes. You have to think very fast, and you go, "Well, we'd love to, but hmm. you know, look." Hmm. Um, and this kind of this kind of thing is something that somehow. Uh, it's very difficult to teach in a school of architecture. It's something that has to be shaped in the world. It, mm. it, it mm. needs those live conversations, and there are times that you're going to get them wrong, mm. and the architecture of the project gets lost because of the inability to sustain that conversation at a key point. Mm. Um, and I just think I'm saying that more because there's students listening to this and all of that. And mm. when those things happen, don't lose heart. Mm. Just learn from that. Hmm. You know th- that that moment is kind of a key thing to kind of see happen, suffer through, <laughs> and then come back smarter. You know, Absolutely. So, you know? yeah,
2: and, and also, I mean, that goes back to the it goes back to the um. It goes back to the uh, notion that, well. Uh, can we only work as architects if we had the perfect conditions? Whatever that that would be. No. Instead, it's a bit like when you have a, when you're starting at a project and and things are sort of very open. There are, there is no zoning or there is no task or anything. It's like uh, this is very difficult. <laughs> Everything is possible. It's you know uh, it's usually good to have some restrictions to start with. You know, just yeah. get started. I mean that's like a, um, almost a liberation in a sense. And and also then when these things arise. I mean, if if you can sort of work them into something, then they will sort of give character, or they will give something to the project that is very specific. You know, even if it is a sort of loss of something else you thought of before, it's going to be a part of that. You know, that project is part of that project sort of genesis or, or process. Um, so yes, we we're, we're not sort of we don't lose lose uh, faith in the in the ideas p- through these moments, but rather. I mean, we do try to do the best we can with them, with the new conditions and so on. And that, of course, goes back to also something we talked about: mm, intellectual, of course, but also l- like we feel like you, you do have to work. Uh, you sort of you have to work hard. You have to do a lot of, um, you know, you have to work through the plans. So have to do a lot of uh, variations. Have so to do uh, deal a lot with the facades. It's it's a lot of work. Uh, to work through all these things Uh, and then if if some condition happened that is exactly as you thought it's just it's just one small thing in a very very large (laughs) uh, you know task of Mm. of working Mm. and
3: and I mean the effort is is something I I mean with clients you often get the sense that they they're um, Mm. they have like a standardized thing that uh, they, s- they say mm, I think this could be more efficient but it's just—it's not that they're looking at the plan thinking that it could be more efficient That, but, but you get some sense that uh, they just say that every time uh, I think maybe this could be more efficient uh, and uh, so you have to go back and work hard uh, at it but the strange thing that even if that is true, which it possibly is uh, it's also it's also true that it could be more efficient I mean not just more efficient but it could be can be done better when you when you go at it the, the 20th time and you're thinking in your head that, uh, they don't understand this can't be we've already elaborated every possible uh, way to do this and then you find no you could do it this way you could find another thing to to work at that, that makes the project better and then that's the that's almost always true
1: yeah yeah. that's an interesting one you know it's one of those ones where the project that one tends in an architecture practice isn't any specific site or client or building for any one person the project that you're tending is the kind of collective thinking of the office Hmm. and there might be 20 projects that you're looking at simultaneously hmm. and ideas transmigrate from one to the other with yes. incredible uh... viral pr- propensity hmm. you know and you're not doing this in some cynical way they just move and we add something we learned as well which is that almost invariably um, you can respond to these setbacks in a way which is positive hmm. i think that the difficulty with it is is that the only ones that we find kind of very difficult to uh, to navigate or when there's certainty on the other side. If it's a question which is like, we think we can do this more efficiently or Mm. we think this could be a little bit, these two spaces could be closer aligned Mm. or these kind of simple things, that's a question that you can respond to. But it's when they say, I want you to put this specifically here Mm. and to change this specifically in this way then it becomes almost impossible to negotiate that because you're dealing <coughs> with certainty on the other side of the table mm. and you're not mm. presenting certainty, but the point is that they're the architect all of a sudden. Mm. When in fact, the architecture emerges in this negotiation. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's We've kind of learned that when you find that the other side of the table, it's probably best to mm.
3: walk away uh <laughs> um. it's it's that is a very thats the that's the most difficult thing when they say oh everything is good you have to change this this and this and and then you you say uh, or you think but if you change this and this and this then we have to change everything because it, it doesn't work if you just change this this and this mm-hmm. uh, but then that is also that can happen uh, and it can happen that the clients they do that and they say no, uh, we think everything. You shouldn't rework everything. Uh, we, we, you should only change this, this, and this. That we, that we, that we are telling. And 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 so that also has to become part of the of the foresight of the process. That to to know that this this <laughs> this can change and, and to be able to
2: to foresee that and and have a kind of a <coughs> into it. And of course, an, an important thing there uh, also, you know, for. Um, perhaps some something to say also to the you know students and such listening that <laughs> that probably happens a lot you know or I mean does happen a lot but it, you also have to when you present anything like even the first sketch you always have to be prepared for the client to say okay this is fine we're going to build it. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> so, actually, so, so you, you can that's never, you can never show it and then say you know we will have so many th- hours of work reworking this. No, sometimes they say okay, this is perfect, we'll do it, hmm. and they have to be prepared to okay. You, so you always have to present something that could, that you think. It'll be good. If it's, if it's good? No, that's true, because oftentimes that's the most shocking <laughs>
1: thing to hear. You go, oh, you don't want to change anything? Oh, no. <laughs> it's all right? And you yeah. go, yeah, 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 yeah. We've had that in f- a couple of projects and it's almost like you've jumped out of the airplane don't wait we'll a <laughs> you know, Are you sure? No, we really think we could do better here. You know, <laughs> this is just the first idea. Um, no, that's true, actually. And you're right. You have to be prepared because you don't know what project, you know, some projects that have the most auspicious beginnings and it, oh my god I can't believe that X or Y has hired us to do hmm. something on this amazing site and you go this is everything hmm. well maybe that's not the project you know you don't know it, it hmm. might be the person who kind of was a bit difficult to deal with hmm. but kept coming back and hmm. a bit curmudgeonly that might be the project that Really turns into something special. You really don't know at the outset. I mean, no. it's funny, you cannot yeah, guess no. at all.
2: Or the second or third product for that client. Yeah. Or that kind of thing, you know. It's like, uh, that's because we also feel like a lot of our work is like we, we constantly sort of search for work, we try to find work in different places and so on, but we also get a lot of work sort of, what do you call that, like recurring or like clients coming back uh, because, you know. They were happy with the process the way it was before, and they sort of come back, which of course is uh, like a, a normal thing to have. But I mean, that is a, a, a thing to have also that when you're dealing with the client and the process, you both have to be you know accommodating, but also sort of safeguard your own ideas and, and you know because it's probably going to if it sort of works out, it's probably going to return in the next project because th- that's what they do. They do more projects later and. Uh, and then you want to have that sort of dynamic, uh, or you know, getting to know each other in that way. Mm. And that's why we, we we rarely turn down projects for that reason. Yeah,
3: it's, um, you never know what can w- what will turn out to be the project that that really captures your imagination. And also, in some sense, it's also a kind of thing that mm, even though the conditions are not great. You you think well but, well, but we could do something. We could be do the best possible version of this. And if we don't do it, the, uh, the most probable outcome is that they'll make something worse. And so you can, if you're not too proud, <laughs> uh, you you can work with uh, with difficult conditions and and feel a pride in doing the best possible version of that of
2: that project.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I was thinking also a little bit what you, what you were asking about the plan uh, before and how, how we work with the plan, and there is something that sort of touches on this too, um, which is that what we find w- when we work with a plan. I don't know if I uh, explained it, but is that we we tend not to express the qualities of the or the, the layout or qualities of the plan in the facade. We don't, you know, we don't have the small yes. bathroom window because the bathroom. Likes to have a small window, and the bedroom likes to have a big window. Uh, perhaps we have no window, or uh-huh. we have a big window, or and that's kind of funny because uh, we somehow we sort of like that sort of in the same way that it that doesn't have to be like an honest um, expression of construction. We also don't feel that there has to be a sort of a honest whatever that would be expression mm-hmm. of the inner you know function. I mean of the, the, the building. There's mm-hmm. We think there should be some sort of autonomy of the architecture, as it were, uh, in relation to the, the things going back and or are or, or being there as well. I mean, mm-hmm. you can you can choose to express parts of what you have in the program, of course, in the facade, but you don't have to do it. I and mean You don't have to have that as a starting point. And that's sort of funny also in relation to this sort of a, a thing with a client is that Sometimes you can have clients saying these sort of things that we were talking about, like, "Well, you need to put this stair here or whatever." But they very rarely uh, question that sort of thing. Hmm. They very rarely say, yo, no, th- th- um, this kind of room needs to have that kind of window or something like that." They don't. They don't. They don't come with those kinds of, no. um, you know, responses. No. So instead, so in many ways, uh, it's more like uh, there is a certain freedom in. in in having the sort of autonomous or autonomy of, of architecture, uh, I mean, you can have a lot of setbacks there as well. They change the materials or they change something else, but mm. it doesn't it doesn't necessarily sort of compromise the the thing you wanted to do inside the building and outside the building because you can sort of have them work at the same time in mm. complex ways. So, yeah, that's also uh, it sort of relates back to that sort of construction versus, you know there's that um, magic of uh,
3: of uh it's a kind of magic for for the exterior and the interior to be to be completely different <laughs> in a sense that that you can have uh, it's sort of like a secret or, uh, or or at least a kind of discovery uh, that um that things don't have to be expressed in that way and that's also one of the things about uh, honesty and and uh, uh, of course kind of functionalism or or things like that that we uh, learned in school Uh, there was always an obsession with um, uh, er eradicating (laughs) the line or the limit between inside and out so it was kind of a modernist uh, uh, it's a modernist trope Uh, but that's um, and so there was such a huge amount of time spent on that instead of thinking about uh, it's a great thing that, yeah, that, that the inside and the outside can be completely different.
1: Yeah, and it's yeah, it's the kind of obvious thing to say, isn't it? But the the facade is a distinct culture because, of course, it has it is informed by its interiority, but it's also informed by its role as the wall of a public space. So the facade is one of the more important public fa- spaces an architect will make, mm-hmm. in that. It's not occupiable, but it's visually appropriatable Mm. by everybody. Mm. And so therefore, it has a completely different set of logics imposed Mm. on it on two of its faces, which is why it's consistently the most complex problem. Mm. Well, also (coughs) technically the Mm. most complex problem. But culturally, it is the most complex problem. I think Mm. harder than the plan, the making of a good elevation or a good facade, Mm. whatever that means is the most frustrating but delightful mm-hmm. and difficult thing to do and also the hardest to talk about mm-hmm. like it's the hardest to describe why certain facades are operating in certain ways what's I mean we can break it down we can analyze proportion and order mm-hmm. and all of those things but there's also aberration within the order and there's you know these kind of things which are harder to talk about which are also present mm-hmm. in facades and aren't contained by any kind of logical breakdown of how they're made. You know we were talking last night about um, the Leverance Courtyard in the the State Insurance Building in Mm -hmm. Stockholm and we were talking about how of course that that courtyard only makes sense because of its juxtaposition with this very heavy, carved, highly abstracted facade Mm -hmm. and then you arrive into this kind of gossamer layered enclosure with the staircase beyond and in that case, the facade is reading as a multiple-layered thing. Mm-hmm. And while I have not been, I'm not sure that that Leverance Courtyard and the Cruz St building is in any way as interesting to me at all. Hmm. You know, because it's I don't see the same I don't see the same rationale or reasoning. Hmm. I mean, it's it's skillful, hmm. but is it going to compel me? I'm mm-hmm. not sure. And I think that that's the thing: the depth and the memory of an elevation or a facade, that expressive qualities has a spatial memory as you continue through mm. the building, mm. even though you're in a completely different space. Mm. And it's not something that's... It's a sort of a shadow. Mm. Mm. It's not a and massive... A pr- kind of.
3: It, that's also uh, uh, a possibility of exploring the tension. Uh, the tension between the inside and out, uh, uh, it's a very natural point of tension, because uh, th- we said that tension is an important part of... Uh, uh, one of the most important themes to, to work with and uh, and almost all of the architecture that we're most interested in, not all good architecture because there there's a huge amount of good architecture that, that doesn't have a lot of tension, uh, uh, but but the things we're most interested in are those that are based on tension uh, and, and the tension between the memory of the facade and, and the inside is uh, uh, yes, it's very fertile ground.
1: So you opened your lecture with a series of, you know, a series of images of work by architects local to where you're from that kind of continue mm. to inform and inspire you, and it was a whole range of, um, of architects. You know, Tengbaum Ragnarosby, um, Ralph Erskine, right? So there was Sæling, um, obviously, um, and they just do, do describe this kind of highly Fertile and kind of very well known uh, space that you're drawing from, but then I'm also interested to see who's fascinating you today. Who are the living architects making work today? Who, not literally you, you emulate, but that mm. who are somehow helping the conversation or
2: the. It's an interesting question. It's <coughs> for us. It's all a been. We've been sort of uh, voracious. Is that the word? Like we, we take in a lot of things. Like we 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 look at a lot of buildings, both from history, from the contemporary. I mean, we like to uh, travel around, look at a lot of buildings, and of course, we nowadays with everything with everything online. Of course, we look at a lot of different. I mean, you sort of because it's such interesting. Oh, someone, this building is very interesting. It, it's sort of a, because architecture is very much a kind of common language of, you know, it doesn't it doesn't always work itself out that language through words sometimes it can be like you're pointing to one part of a composition that someone did on the facade and you sort of understand something Uh, and very much so of course with the contemporary work because that (laughs) everyone is sort of dealing with the same conditions that we are dealing with now Uh, so as we can draw on some historic precedent of course uh, in many ways it's uh, often very interesting to see this sort of so i I don't know i mean i mean we do find the sort of affinity of course with a lot of practices in you know in the uk and switzerland and and um and holland and um, this kind of sort of whatever that is this kind of european kind of field of, of architects that are a little bit difficult to define but sort of work within these conditions have some we feel, many times, a sort of sensibility towards some sort of historic or other, architectonic, you know, culture. Hmm. Um, I don't know who to sort of single out in that sense. It's maybe better to say a few then, because, yeah. It's yeah, I could <laughs> probably say a number of them. <laughs> no, yeah. but
3: to, to, to give a local example, uh, I uh, like a uh, lot of the work of Johan Selzing. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I admire his uh, steadfastness uh, working in in these very difficult as we said Swedish conditions. He he really uh, uh, has been able to make a lot out of that. Um, and then, uh, as you mentioned, Musaibi, uh, I really love their plans and uh, and how they work with uh, with all of that and the those uh, kinds of expressions. There are really a lot of people. There's so so of you th- really you should really say should really name p- perhaps 20 rather than to see a few. But yes. uh, and um, and
2: as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I mean, it's kind of fascinating to see. Uh, we are talking about Sardis and Bates. They've had this sort of, I mean, they've been around, lo- around for a long time, but then it seems that they can become uh, a number of projects at the same time that are mm-hmm. very sort of rich, going in all kinds of directions. I mean. Of course, there are lots of younger officers as well that perhaps you see a project for the first time. And sort of relating mm-hmm. to that, but I mean, yeah. I w- what we don't relate so much to, uh, to I guess, is the, that kind of somehow focus on you know purity, mm-hmm. unity, <laughs> strength, <laughs> and those kind of things, like the sort of uh we want to we want to do this building because it's difficult to do it p- the building that way or you know that kind yeah, of thing yeah, no, yeah. we don't relate much to that so we, we like this sort of more layered yes we we really
3: i mean when we go around and we uh, and we look at projects and I, I never like to speak ill of any architects yes. by name so yeah. but we really had that uh we really had that uh, uh, quite a couple of times uh, that experience of uh, admiring someone's work from images and uh, and thinking that, that this is interesting and then arriving at their at their uh, at the sites and at the buildings and feeling absolutely nothing and uh, and uh, really wanting to to yeah. have, uh, wanting to to uh, have a connection with it but not finding it and and so I think as you said that uh, uh, maybe that is quite common with with these pure uh, that you admire for their clarity and their purity but then when you get there it doesn't speak to you and so uh, that's um, that that's been an experience that we've had a couple of times
1: yeah me too and uh, it confuses me why critics don't get it so they obviously feel something or maybe they're impressed by the intellectual (coughs) gamesmanship or something i don't know what it is Mm. but it's true that spatially and in the kind of resonant feeling from the works and i think without naming names we Mm. We know who we're all talking about here.
2: and Yeah, I don't feel anything. Um, And that also brings into, I mean, there's also like, uh, we have come to some buildings where you you feel like, well, these are the sort of super perfect details that are fetishized.
3: Hmm.
2: And then, you know, that building can sort of feel kind of dead or cold. And then you feel a little bit like, well, this sort of extreme quality what is it for if the sort of overall architecture isn't you know calibrated in the right way? As you said before, if it I- doesn't resonate you, with you on a sort of human level or a, a, you know as part of the kind of world we would like to build? I mean if it is sort of remote and code doesn't engage and it's perfect, then you're more interested in. Uh, so w- one positive example you can name also is that we, when we went to S- Switzerland a few years ago, I'm very fascinated by this sort of small building, by Ficket. a mm, sort okay. of pink, uh, pink building in Zurich uh, next to the street uh, that has a lot of these sort of very interesting, you know, modulations of uh, forms and, and yeah. elements that you can put together, and it's, it per- perfectly works in the in the in the context. Mm. But the more you look at it, it's, the more it's like. Yes, just have a smile on your face. Uh, I also yeah. thought
3: that the huge block was... I mean, it's very difficult to make such a huge block in, in, in one with one kind of architecture that w- was on the outskirts, but it really it really had a kind of humanist and, and a nice feel to it.
2: Uh. Yes, and also a sort of balanced uh, whole that... that um, um, I don't know so much about their work otherwise, but what um, really felt from this tiny project inside the center and this huge block on the outside Really felt like that they would work on the overall thing, calibrating the different things. Not saying any particular one would be sufficient, but that you know, or sub sub optimized. Hmm. But whether it all works on a on a bigger scale, whether you can relate to it yeah. So but that's I also I also really like
3: also really like the the opposite to to find a building that's not at all in your affinity and something that you would perhaps in some sense uh, that lot of <laughs> that you have a kind of disdain for mm. and still be drawn in by it uh, m- not disdain maybe but something that does it that's not in your uh, wheelhouse so to speak uh, but but I can't can think of anything but I know I had that experience to uh, oh I like this <laughs> I don't know why I think uh, well for a very very long time ago uh, uh, when I was still uh, thinking architecture school uh, I uh, went to the, uh, what's it called, the MMK in, is it the MMK? In the Hollein? Yeah, the Hollein. Oh,
1: the Hollein, yeah, yeah. Uh, and
3: then I was not at all interested uh, in, uh, or uh, always been interested in postmodernism and, and that kind of thing, but not, I, I never thought of it really. But I was really delighted when I when I w- walked into that. It was completely the opposite of what I was doing in school, and I and I had that kind of um, uh, uh, epiphany that you have to think more like this and able to do to, to be able to do interesting stuff uh, instead of uh, maybe the. Wrote modernist, or having the perfect uh, sharp corner, <laughs> or something like that—that that you were, that you were doing at school—and and that kind of experience is really uh, very—it's really great, I think.
1: Yeah, it's true, and actually, those things where you walk in with one expectation and walk out with another are mm. the the loveliest things. We always um, end this interview with the same question which is if you had a single piece of advice to give somebody
2: studying architecture today what would it be? Well, (coughs) I always think it's um, important, uh, delightful and uh, you know, uh, rewarding to to visit buildings and visit a lot of buildings you know, travel around or just visit the buildings in the city where you are Uh, there are so many things you can just learn by by, by and an, and really seeing the buildings together is a great thing. You know, go with your colleagues, or your friends, or the people you want to work with, because together you're going to see a lot of things. It's really like a it's the sort of never-ending education on the architect is that you continue doing that for the rest of your life. Just and I think also as a student, that's something you want to do mm-hmm. and uh, work hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think,
3: uh, but possibly the thing that I said last time, but. Uh, it's very important to change your mind. Hmm. Uh, even if you, uh, even if you happen to have the right uh, "in quotes" uh, 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 the mindset now, if you're working with the right teams, think it's uh, it. Sh- you should change, uh, or you should really be open to change. Uh, uh, and when you get that sensation that maybe maybe this. Maybe I should think in another way. You should embrace that that uh, that feeling that that you can change. If you think, th- I mean, as we said, uh, we're very interested in in in, in history and and continuity. Or as we said uh, before, if if you think that uh, honesty is maybe a dead end, then you should consider <laughs> changing your mind. I think. Mm. Hmm. No, maybe you should think about honesty again. Uh, what, what could that? What could that be? Uh, and so, um, <coughs> I think that uh, it's good to be able to continually change your mind uh, about all things in life, uh, uh, politics or yeah. art or <laughs> anything. Uh, it's it's an important uh, it's an important trait that is undervalued, I think now because yeah. uh, uh, now this. In public discourse, it's, there's such a huge premium on on, on ha- always having thought <laughs> the same thing, uh, to always have have had the same ideas. And I always admire people who say that no, my uh, I changed my mind, and uh, but that was wrong. And, yeah, and uh, I, I don't think that anymore, uh, uh, and and that they are still also then able to maybe change their mind again.
1: Yeah. That's a very nice note to end on. So, Samuel and Andreas, thank you very much.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode and I do hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please remember to subscribe and to leave your reviews and comments. It all helps. And before signing off, I'd just like to thank Christoph Luder, Matt Wells, Matt Phillips, and of course, Laura Evans for their work as part of the registered team. Do, do join us next time. Thank you very much. Bye.